invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 7. We'll be reading together verses 7 through 13. And as you turn, let me tell you that next Sunday in the morning, uh, Dr. Bruce Bogus will be preaching the last passage from Romans chapter 7. Uh, those of you who uh, joined Pear Orchard from Trinity, uh, had many years with Bruce preaching God's word to you, and uh, he is, as you know, uh, leaving uh, to go teach at Puritan Reform Seminary in uh, Grand Rapids, and so he and Trish will be moving at the end of this month, uh, and so this is uh, his, his last opportunity to preach uh, God's word here uh, in the Jackson area. I'm sure uh, he'll be back at different points in time, but I do encourage you all to, to join us next Lord's Day as we get to sit under the teaching of Dr. Bogus and, and hear uh, this glorious chapter, uh, the end of this chapter is such an important passage uh, from, uh, from his own lips. So uh, let's now take our uh, Bibles and turn our attention to chapter 7, verses 7 through 13. This is God's word. Paul writes, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin, producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades. The word of our God stands forever. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us as we study his word. Well, Father God, we thank you that by your grace, we can come and we can feast in your house. Lord, and the, the chief fare that we feast upon is your word. Lord, we thank you so much that you give to us this firm foundation that we might understand you and might understand ourselves. We might understand your grace to us in Jesus Christ. Oh Lord, would you come now and by your Holy Spirit, would you convict us all of sin? Lord, would you drive home this reality that we are sinners? Lord, we thank you for your holy law and for all the ways that you use your law. Lord, we pray that you would even now come and through the preaching of your scriptures, you would convert the unconverted, and you would build up your people in faith and hope and love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Like some of you, I'm sure I grew up reading Encyclopedia Brown books, and it's been exciting to see my own children start to, to enjoy those books as well. If you did read them, you probably remember that it seemed like every book had one story in it of a young child, a boy or a girl, who was being falsely accused of a crime. And so they would come to Leroy Brown, Idaville's 10-year-old star detective, a.k.a. Encyclopedia, right, because of his you know, encyclopedic knowledge and his deductive skills. 
Uh, and they would pay him 25 cents. Ah, for the days of things that cost 25 cents, right? They'd pay him 25 cents to solve his case, to find the true villain, the true culprit of the crime. And it usually turned out to be Bugs Meany or one of the other members of the Tiger Gang, right? If you've read those stories, you remember these names. And the joy of Donald Sobel's classic series, though, uh, was that you, as the reader, uh, would try to figure out uh, who had done it before Encyclopedia Brown did. Or if, if they told you who did it in the store, you were trying to figure out how did he know. And if you were like me, yes, you did have to look at the back of the book more often than not to find the answer, right? You weren't smart enough to figure out how he had done it or who had done it. Now, we've all read stories or we've seen uh, TV shows or movies that have this sort of a, of a narrative, a story, a, a, a good guy who's falsely accused. Right? But by the end of the story, the real villain has been revealed. These are gripping tales. right? We, we, we like them, we watch them, we follow them, we read them because they hold our attention, they engage our minds. We want to know who really done it. Well, in our text this morning, Paul has that sort of a detective story to tell us. But you don't have to go to the back of the book to find the answer. He gives us the answer right here in the text. He gives us the true villain. Now, if you have been with us these last few weeks and as we've been looking at uh, the letter to the Romans it's possible that you've come away thus far with a pretty low view of the law you may in in fact think that the law of God is the villain I mean think about it we've said that all of us have broken the law of God the law of God uh, cannot justify us before God by by our keeping it the, the law can't save us Right? We've seen in chapter 6 and 7 that the believer in Jesus is not under the law of God. Uh, and just as Paul said in chapter 6 that we died to sin, so in the text right before this, Paul has said that we died to the law. And so you start to do the math and you put two and two together. You deduce like Encyclopedia Brown and you say, well, wait a minute. If Paul, if we've died to sin and we've died to the law, then you're saying that the law is sin. And so Paul begins this section with these rhetorical questions. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? This is the third time that Paul has, has written in this, in this way with this rhetorical question. He, he's, he's trying to guard, isn't he, against misunderstanding, against uh, false conclusions from what he has been teaching. Now maybe along the way you've, you've thought, you know, Paul, you keep trying to, to keep people from misunderstanding you. Why don't you just write more clearly? And of course, it's, the reason why there are some things that, that, that could be misunderstood is not because Paul or the Holy Spirit are, are either purposefully or accidentally being unclear. No, but it's because our minds, affected by the fall, tend to distort truth. It's because there are some things in the Bible, and particularly in Paul, as Peter will tell us, that are just hard to understand. And the truth is not simplistic. It's multifaceted. And so Paul can't say everything all at once. And therefore, he needs to explain and he needs to caveat and qualify and nuance. But notice that for the third time, back in chapter 6, verse 1, chapter 6, verse 15, and now here, he explains, he nuances, he caveats with vehemence. Right? With an indignance, with a, a recoiling abhorrence that this conclusion might ever be thought to be drawn from the things that he has said. Look at what he says there in verse 7. Should we say that the law is sin? 
By no means, he says, by no means are we to continue in sin that grace may abound. Chapter 6, verse 1. By no means are we to sin because we're not under law, but under grace. Chapter 6, verse 15. And here, by no means is the law sin. The true villain is not the law. The law is not sinful, Paul is saying. No, as you see there in verse 12, the, the law is holy and righteous and good. It reflects God's holy character. And so it itself is transcendently pure. The law is perfectly righteous and just and and equitable. It it promotes true human well-being and human flourishing. It is good. The true villain, says Paul, the true villain is sin. And yet this thought that the law is sin doesn't completely come out of left field. right? There is a relationship between the law and and sin. And so here in this text, Paul wants us to understand that relationship more clearly. And he, he does that by sharing with us a part of his own testimony, his own life story, the way that the law and sin and grace came together in his own experience. Through reading the story of Paul's life, we see how horrible sin is. And we see how desperately we need the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are three things that Paul wants you to see here in this passage. First, that the law demonstrates sin. Secondly, that the law instigates sin. And thirdly, that the law aggravates sin. It demonstrates, it instigates, and it aggravates. Let's look at these three things together from the text. First, the law demonstrates sin. Look at verse 7. By no means, Paul has said, yet, if it had not been for the law... I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. The law, says Paul, demonstrates sin. It enables us to know what sin is. It reveals what sin is. Even our children who grow up learning the children's catechism can tell us the definition of sin. What is sin? Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. We define sin in relationship to the law. The law defines sin for us. We know instinctively, yes, to be sure, that we're doing something right or wrong in our conscience. Paul has told us that. But until the law comes and defines sin in relationship to a holy God, then the things that we know are right or wrong, we don't see them necessarily as sin against a holy God. We don't see them necessarily as something that displeases God until we see our behavior, our actions, our thoughts, our feelings in the light of his law. The law is the straight edge that shows us how crooked we are. It is the level that shows us how unlevel, unbalanced we are. It is the light that shines in your homes to show you how dirty your homes are. Or we might say it's the vacuum cleaner that comes and shows you how dirty your house is. When we were living in Columbia, Mississippi, just after seminary and my first pastorate, we had just moved into our house and, and, and not too long after we got there, the rainbow vacuum cleaner man showed up at our front door. And if you ever had the rainbow vacuum cleaner man come up, you know how that works, right? He comes into your house and he says, hey, your carpet is so dirty, you need to buy a rainbow vacuum cleaner. And we're thinking, we vacuum our house every day or at least every week, right? Our, our house is not dirty. Our, our carpet's not that dirty. And so what does he do? He turns on the rainbow vacuum. If you've ever seen it, you know, it brings in some sort of water and it's, you know, it's this ex- system. And, and so all of a sudden he, he turns it on. He, he, you know, he runs the vacuum once down your carpet 
and the water is filthy. It's black. It's so dirty. You're thinking, we must own one of these. And he says, it's only $2,000. And you think, our kids will, will, will crawl on dirty floors, right? It's, you know, it'll be good for their immune system. Um, but here's the thing. Sin is never good for us. Sin is never good for us. And God's law functions just like that vacuum cleaner. God's law comes and says, let me show you how filthy your heart is. Let me show you how unclean your life is. You may think, like we thought, eh, it's not that dirty. And sure, you may not be as dirty as someone who never vacuumed their house ever. But Paul is saying the law of God comes and declares that you are a sinner. Here's what sin is. Here's how dirty you are compared to the holiness of God. Now, Paul had already declared this, hasn't he, in Romans chapter 3, verse 20, when he said that by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So he's already talked about this principle, but now he's telling us here in this text how that principle worked out in his own experience. Because when we say that the law demonstrates sin, we don't just mean that it does it intellectually, right? It it defines sin for us so that we could pass a short answer test or something. No, the law demonstrates sin experientially. When the Holy Spirit gives us eyes to see, the law comes and shows us what sin is in our own lives. So that we, we don't just say men are sinful. We don't just even say, I'm a sinner. But with Paul, we say, I have broken this specific command, that specific command. And so for Paul, what was that command? It was the 10th commandment. The 10th commandment, you shall not covet. The law came to Paul and revealed the presence of this sin in his own heart. More accurately than any pregnancy test, any COVID test, it came and revealed to Paul, you are the man, you are the sinner. And think about it, the 10th commandment of all of those commandments that God has given on Mount Sinai, that still have abiding relevance for all mankind today. Of all Ten Commandments, the Tenth Commandment is the one that most explicitly deals with the inner man, the heart, the thoughts, the feelings, the desires. And so there's nowhere to run. There's nowhere to escape from its searching gaze. It's not just dealing with an external action, but with the desires of the heart. You shall not covet. You shall not desire your neighbor's wife or his house. And so Paul, through the law, was revealed to be a sinner. Paul, through the law, was made to see that invisible cancer of his heart that that he could not see without the law. He was made to see his need for a Savior. Paul, the great Pharisee, who thought that he was pretty good, right? who thought that, not just pretty good, Paul thought he was amazing. He was great. He could He he said, I was blameless, it felt like, to him. And yet, when the 10th commandment came, when it came into his experience, into his heart and his mind, when the Holy Spirit drove it home to him, he knew he couldn't hide, he couldn't run, he couldn't deny the fact that he was a covetous man. He was a sinner. He had inordinate desires that were, in fact, idolatrous desires. Paul will tell us later in Colossians 3 that covetousness is idolatry. Why? Because the thing longed for usurps the place of God in our hearts. It becomes a God that we cannot live without. And so to covet, to break the 10th commandment, is to break the first commandment. 
And Paul, who probably thought, I'm not an idolater. I worship the one true God. I say the Shema every morning from Deuteronomy 6 that we read. All of a sudden, the law comes home to him. It demonstrates that he is a sinner. He is a sinner. He is one who has broken God's law. He is discontented. He is grasping and greedy. He is idolatrous. He is covetous. So the law demonstrates sin for us. Has it done that for you? Has it shown you your sin? Well, unfortunately, it gets worse, doesn't it? Because not only does the law demonstrate sin, it also instigates sin. Look at how Paul continues in verse 8. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. We saw Paul mention this last week in chapter 7, verse 5. While we were living in the flesh, he said, our sinful passions were aroused by the law. The law didn't just show Paul that he was a covetous man. The law led him to covet even more. And we have to be careful here, don't we? When Paul says that the sinful passions of those in the flesh, those who are not converted, when they are aroused by the law, or when I say that the law instigates sin, we have to be careful. We're not saying, Paul's not saying, I'm not saying, that God's law is actively trying to get us to break itself, or that God designed and intended his law to arouse our sinful passions. No, Paul is clear here. Sin is the active power at work in us before we are saved by Jesus Christ. Sin is the active power that uses the law to accomplish its deadly work. The law is merely the external stimulus that, that, that sets sin off. It's like if you've ever used a, a stud finder and you're, you're moving it over the sheetrock and all of a sudden it, it moves over the, the wood, the stud, right? and it starts to beep, it starts to go off. Why? Because it, it has found what it's looking for. In the same way, sin right, finds the law, it, it uses the law as an occasion to produce within us more and more sin. Sin is an opportunist. It, it, look at how Paul says it again. It seizes the opportunity through the commandment. It leverages the law to give unconverted Paul and you, if you're not converted this morning, all sorts of ideas of how to rebel against God. It takes full advantage of the law's prohibitions and precepts. In Paul's case, to cause him to covet all the more in, in all sorts of ways, whether desiring illicit things or, or inordinately desiring lawful things. And now Paul, in verses 8 through 11, begins to, to unpack further his own story, his own personal story, to, to show us how sin works. Look at what he says there. He says, for apart from the law, sin lies dead. Now, he doesn't mean by that, that that sin is non-existent apart from the law, but rather that it's inactive, it's inert, it's dormant. It's like the, the, the Roman guards that we saw at the, the, the tomb of Jesus after the angel appeared. They, they lay on the ground dead, as if dead. Paul says sin is, is dead apart from the law. And then he says about himself, verse 9, that he was once alive apart from the law. That is, he was alive in his own estimation of himself. He was self-righteous and self-complacent. He thought that everything was fine with him. He didn't see how sinful he was. He didn't see how much the law demanded of him, how spiritual the law was. He didn't see how holy the law was, how, how deep and, and full and broad the law was. Verse 9, he goes on to say, but when the commandment came, sin came alive 
and I died. When the Holy Spirit began to open Paul's eyes to the holy law of God, dormant sin came to life. Perhaps you've been out in the yard and you're, you're working around a bush or, or in the yard and all of a sudden uh, you step in the wrong place or you, you, you move the wrong branch and, and that yellow jacket nest that had been dormant and, and docile that had just sort of been at rest, all of a sudden they're all attacking you. You've brought it to life. You've stirred it up. And that's what's going on here, Paul is saying. When the commandment came, sin came to life and you die. All of a sudden, Paul, who thought he was a pretty amazing batter, realized he had been batting against third-grade pitchers. And now here is a pitcher throwing 95-mile-per-hour fastballs, and he doesn't even see the ball. He realizes, I am not as good as I thought I was. He becomes sensible of his sin through the law, because the law was inclining him and inciting him to even more sin. It was the occasion that sin was using to, to make Paul die. And when Paul says that he died there, what he means is that his false sense of his own goodness, of his self-righteousness, it was shattered because he realized that he could not keep God's law. For the first time, he saw himself as a condemned sinner. He saw himself as one who was devoid of true spiritual life. The very commandment, though, that promised life, Paul said, it proved to be death to him. The commandment that said, do this and you will live. Sin took that commandment. And it said, oh yeah, try, try, but you're not going to succeed. You're going to fail because I, sin, will come and will, will, through that law, give you desires to break that law, to fly in the face of God's prohibitions and his precepts. Sin will use the law as an operating base, as a beachhead to, to launch its deadly assaults against you. You see how Paul goes on to say it there in verse 11, for sin Seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me, and through it killed me. Paul had been relying on the law as a way of life. He thought that by keeping it, he could have eternal life. But as we saw last week, the law has no power in of itself to enable you to keep it. It has no power to restrain you from sin. And so sin mockingly used the law to get Paul to do what God had said not to do and to to not do what God had said to do, and so to condemn him, to bring him to a knowledge that he was dead. He was a dead man walking. This is how sin operates. Incited by God's good law, sin takes opportunity through the law to destroy us. Which brings us to the last thing that Paul wants us to see about the law and the sin. sin the law doesn't just demonstrate sin or instigate sin, it also aggravates sin. Now, when I use this word aggravate, I'm not using it to, in the sense of annoy, right? You're aggravating me. You're annoying me. No, I'm using it in the, in the sense of, of to intensify, to make more severe, to make worse, right? The way that we talk about the crime of assault and the crime of aggravated assault, right? What, what is aggravated assault? It's assault using some sort of means, a weapon, a tool that could, could bring deadly harm or serious injury. That's aggravated assault. It's assault intensified. Well, that's what Paul is telling us here in verse 13, that the law aggravates sin. It intensifies sin. Look at what he says. He's just told us in verse 12 that the law is not the villain. It's holy and righteous and good. And then he writes this. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. There's his word again. It was sin 
producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. You see, it's so important that you get this. It's not grace is good and the law is bad. Rather, it's the law is good and sin is bad. The law is good. It is God's good gift. It is not the villain. Sin is the villain, Paul is saying. And Paul wants us to have a correct view of the law of God. Sin is the villain. Sin is what produces death, not the law. And unlike God who brings good out of evil, sin brings evil out of good. It uses the good law to accomplish death. But here's the glorious thing. God brings good even out of the evil of sin in this sense. Through the good commandment, God shows us that sin is utterly sinful. That might sound redundant to you. Sin is utterly sinful. Well, here's the point. Sin is sinful. It is contrary to God's holy standard, to his goodness. And the sinfulness of sin is aggravated. It's magnified. It's intensified through the law of God. The law of God shows how perverse sin is in every way. It doesn't just demonstrate sin to be sin. But because the law instigates sin, because the law through, sin through the law produces sin in us, we see all the more how horrible sin is, how odious sin is, how dangerous sin is, how deadly sin is. The law aggravates sin and heightens its wickedness in our sight. It gives us a reverent and godly fear of the law, of the sin, excuse me. The law says, do you see how wicked sin is? Do you see what sin does to you? Do you see how it brings death? Paul is telling us about himself here. But here's the thing. If you just read this as sort of Paul's biography, if you just read this as a description of of the law's relationship to sin in Paul's life, then you're missing the point. Because Paul is telling us his story in order that we might see in his story our own story. If if you have never in your experience as a human been made to see that you are a sinner, if you've never felt to some degree the way that sin has used God's law to provoke you even unto more sin, if you have never seen the sinfulness of sin, then the Bible would say, that you've never yet come to see your need for Jesus. You're either a proud Pharisee or you're a, a happy pagan, a, a, a pagan who is, is blissfully ignorant of your plight. And in either case, you are among the healthy that don't need Jesus. Because Jesus said, I haven't come to save the healthy. It's not the healthy that need a doctor. I've come to save the sick. I've come to save not the righteous, but sinners to call them to repentance. And so if you've never acknowledged your sinfulness, if you've never owned up to the fact that when you look at the law of God, you see a picture of how you have disobeyed God, then it's very likely you're not a Christian because a Christian is someone who has seen his or her sin, has seen the sinfulness of sin, the wickedness of sin, 
has felt, as Paul did, the way that sin slayed him and killed him and brought him death rather than life. But if you were here this morning and you know yourself to be sick, you through the law have seen that sin is sin. You've seen how sinful sin is. You've seen the way that sin uses the law to kill you. And Jesus Christ is a perfect savior for you because he is a savior of sinners. He is a savior of all who would call upon him alone for salvation. He has died on the cross as we celebrate at his table this morning to save sinners from this great villain called sin. Indeed, it's, it's not only through the law, but it's through the cross of Jesus that we see what sin is, that we see what sin deserves, that we see the sinfulness of sin. But we also, when we come to the cross, see the greatness of the love of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We see the greatness and the graciousness of his plan of salvation. And so as we come to the table this morning, may we not only see the goodness of the law, Paul doesn't want us to miss that, but may we also see the horrible nature of sin, the heinousness of sin, and may we see the graciousness of our God. We sing it, don't we, and beneath the cross of Jesus, two wonders I confess, the greatness, the marvel, the wonder of redeeming love and my unworthiness. As we come to the table this morning, in light of what we've just heard from Romans chapter 7, can we say anything but what we're about to sing? Hallelujah. What a Savior. Sin is the great villain. And Jesus, he is the hero. He is the Savior of sinners. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we thank you for giving us this word that helps us to understand the relationship between law and sin. Lord, we thank you for your holy law. It is good, it is righteous, it is just, it is perfect. And it has demonstrated to us, it has revealed to us what sin is. So Lord, we are left without excuse, without any wondering if we are sinners. And yet, oh Lord, until your spirit opens eyes and softens heart, forever we will think that there's really nothing that bad about us. So Lord, would you be pleased, even this morning, to open the eyes of the blind. Lord, to afflict the comfortable. And then, the Lord, would you comfort the afflicted? Would you bring the gospel to bear in the lives of those who know themselves to be sinners, who know how sinful sin is, who have felt within them the way that, the, that sin uses the law to get them to, to break the law and to go against your holy command, and so to bring us into a state of death. Oh, Lord, would you come and would you give us life and life eternal and life abundant through Jesus Christ? Holy Spirit, help us, we pray, to see our Savior for all that he has done, that all that he is. We ask this in his holy name. Amen.